Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we pollinate your brain with infinitesimal science particles. I'm Victoria Bond. On this edition, we'll feature the science behind the birds and the bees and a Wartsall look at the cane toad. But first up, here's the news with Julianne Popple. There is some evidence indicating that the cervical cancer vaccination program may have been successful. The program, which has been vaccinating women aged 12 to 26, has been running since 2007. The recent research published in medical journal The Lancet showed that the proportion of girls aged 17 and younger with high-grade abnormalities fell by almost half from 0.8% to 0.42%. No significant difference was found in women aged 18 to 26, most likely, the researchers say, because the vaccine is most effective when administered prior to girls being sexually active. However, further investigation is required to determine whether the observed drop in abnormalities is observed in teenage women is due to the vaccine itself or to other factors. A proposal to extend the vaccination program to boys was recently knocked back as it was deemed to be not cost-effective. It's worth noting, just to give a bit of background information, that there are over 100 types of human papilloma viruses, HPVs, and these don't just cause cancer or cervical cancer, they also cause other types of cancer, including genital warts, penile head and neck cancers. The vaccine, Garsal, protects against four of these types. Two of these types cause 90% of genital warts. The other two cause about 70% of cervical cancers and 80% of anal cancers and are also implicated in a proportion of penile head and neck cancers. Vaccinating women will not entirely protect men as not all women will be vaccinated and particularly homosexual men will not be protected. Although penile, anal, head and neck cancers are quite rare, it is worth noting that the vaccine is available to men but the cost won't be subsidised. It is up to individuals to determine whether the cost is worth it. One thing to consider is that the vaccine is most effective before people are sexually active, so this is most likely a valid consideration for young teenagers and young homosexuals in particular. So as a recipient of the Gardasil vaccine without having access to the PBS, I can tell you that it's roughly $300.00. It's, it's right. pretty expensive. It's pretty expensive, And yeah. it's, it's three shots. So yeah. sh- depending on your provider, it'll be about $100 a pop, which is quite difficult, especially if you're a young teenager having access to that money as a young man. I don't really see how that would be possible. Do you know, Victoria, why it is only recommended for people prior to being sexually active rather than once they're sexually active adults? Like, why wouldn't it just work in an adult? Because the human papillomavirus is exceedingly common. So there's the assumption that once you're sexually active, 80% of people will have been exposed to the virus. So you really want to hit the, the iron while it's hot. Once they're exposed, then, you know, it's incorporated itself into the cells. And the vaccine works by preventing the virus entry into these cells. So the assumption is that it's already too late for everyone else. 
there is that assumption. It's pretty harsh, but there's also the fact, little known fact, that once people are exposed to HPV, quite in the majority of cases, they clear the virus within a year. So that's why young women, when they receive abnormal pap smear exams, are often told to come back within six months to a year for a follow-up because in most cases, it'll just revert back to normal as they clear the, the virus by themselves. All the vaccine does is prime their immune system. It's like getting a flashcard so that they recognize the vaccine on the first go and can clear it right away before it does any damage. There's the other problem, of course, with this article that at most you'll be vaccinating 50% of the population. And that's not really the way a vaccine is designed to work in terms of herd immunity. It'll help protect the women that do receive the vaccine for a certain amount of time, but it's not going to be effective at wiping out the virus completely because you're still going to have that reservoir of people that have the virus. Absolutely. The data also supports this idea of vaccinating people young and before they're sexually active because older women, well, 18 to 26, they didn't see any significant reduction in the incidence of high-grade abnormalities. Incidentally, um, Victoria, can you tell us what exactly is meant by high-grade abnormalities? So when you get an abnormal pap smear result, you can. it used to be called SIN 1 to 3, but now it's called low-grade or high-grade. So that's just, they look at the cells that they scrape off of your cervix, or my cervix, or anyone's cervix, <laughs> um, and those cells can look absolutely normal, or they can look a little bit off, or they can look pretty off, mm -hmm. and then they can just look cancerous. And uh, there's a few things that they look at, like the nucleus size or the, the cell shape. It doesn't really matter. It's all a spectrum. But the idea is that for the low-grade changes, most of them will revert back to normal as the woman clears the virus or not. They can also progress to becoming more and more dysplastic, and that means the cells look less and less normal, and then eventually they become cancerous. But what they've actually found, and in, in some European countries, they don't even give pap smears to women under 30, because the vast majority of women under 30 can have abnormal-looking cervical cells that just revert back to normal, and so it causes more anxiety than it helps prevent certain cervical cancers. There's some doctors say that we're over-screening for cervical cancer in young women, and that's pretty controversial. I've heard a similar debate when it comes to testing for prostate cancer as well in men, that it can cause too much anxiety. That's right, and the screen we have for prostate cancers is, I mean, it's rubbish. P PSA can be raised for all sorts of reasons. That's um, the serum that you look at in the blood, and then you can also do pre-rectal palpation, but that's also very insensitive. I mean, the, the things that we have to look for prostate cancer aren't very helpful. So if you screen everyone, you'll have a lot of people that come back as false positives. The climate change debate continues to heat up with climate change scientists receiving death threats recently. However, CSIRO has taken a very positive step forward by creating a new website displaying raw data of atmospheric concentrations of the greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide and methane. These measurements were obtained from a baseline air pollution station at Cape Grimm on Tasmania's west coast. These stations are designed to meet a specific set of criteria defined by the World Meteorological Organization for measuring greenhouse and ozone depleting gases and aerosols in clean air environments. Now, as you can expect, the air around Tasmania would be pretty clean. From the data, it's pretty clear that the atmospheric concentration of these gases has been steadily rising over the past 30 years. Initiatives such as this website are an excellent way of communicating research to the public, and hopefully further initiatives like this will help calm the hysteria clouding the issue. I urge listeners to check out the data 
at www.csiro.au slash greenhouse hyphen gases. On a greener note, the new CSIRO solar tower has recently been unveiled in Newcastle. The tower is 30 metres high and surrounded by 450 custom-built heliostats, which concentrate solar power to the central tower receiver. This process generates high temperatures and is used to power a turbine, which in turn generates electricity. This new facility will be used as both a source of renewable energy for the Hunter region and for research. Further details and stunning visuals can be found at zdnet.com.au. Yes, and Julianne, I'd read that this new solar tower actually uses air in its turbine instead of steam, so there's no need for water. Excellent. But how does that work exactly, Ian? (laughs) The air gets heated by the mirrors, and the air expands, and it goes through a turbine, and it spins the blades just like steam would if you were heating, converting water into steam. So it works exactly the same way, except you've got a turbine which is driven by hot air. So you don't use any water, you don't need any water, you don't waste any water. So you can put these anywhere where there's lots of sun. And we have a lot of places with lots of sun and no water. So I think it'll be good. Well, you can't get renewable energy more green than that. Scientists have recently discovered that sensory hairs on the wings of bats help them to fly. Echolocation is still the main mechanism with which bats manage flying in the dark. However, research recently published in the journal PNAS, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, has recently shown that small sensory hairs also play a role by allowing the animal to to detect slight gusts of air. Removing the hairs on the wing by chemical dilapidation, no one was shaving a bat, caused bats to fly faster than normally, which researchers say may be due to the bat trying to prevent itself stalling in the absence of sensory input from the hairs. Thank you, Julianne. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send us an email at diffusion at 2SCR.com. We're recorded in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. We think we know all about the birds and the bees, but do we really? We'll go back to biology basics with botanist Dr. Trevor Wilson. Joining him in the studio are Ian Wolfe and Julianne Popple. Dr. Trevor Wilson, thank you very much for joining us this evening. No problem. For the benefit of confused children and adults the world over, can you explain the real meaning of the birds and the bees? <laughs> well, I guess we all grow up thinking that uh, the birds and the bees are, are actually just having sex with each other or something like that. But I guess what it means more is plant sex and how plants do it with each other. And most plants, that is, there's about a quarter million species of angiosperms that makes up most plants in the world that that exist today, um, rely on these organisms to transport the pollen from individual to individual in order to have proper sex so that they can distribute their genes between parents. So the birds and the bees, do they have any idea what they're getting themselves into? (laughs) Well, they know they're going for some sort of rewards. You can be on either side of this thing. You can be on the plant side, where the the plants are manipulating these animals to do their bidding, (laughs) to, to do their dirty deeds. Or you could be on the animal side, where they're actually exploiting the plants for any sort of uh, rewards. That could be eating pollen, which is a big bee thing to do, 
or um, drinking nectar, which birds seem to enjoy. But uh, birds don't seem to like to eat pollen. Why can't everyone just be a, a winner when it comes to the birds and the bees? That's how I like to think of it. I mean, I, yeah. I've heard of the term symbiosis. Would you describe this relationship as a symbiotic relationship? Yeah, it can be a symbiotic relationship, especially in certain cases, in certain one-to-one relationships between plant and organism. But we find normally that there's pollination is a little more generalist than we think. And that's a bit of what my research is kind of showing, Just and, and other people have done that before me too, where you have like a whole group of people and you might have a principal pollinator or one that actually is doing a real good work for the plant and then you got a few freeloaders that go hey look there's a honey pot there that this guy's using and you know they fight over and there might be people have been showing that there's like different amounts of how good uh, each organism might be as a pollinator or there might be some that are just complete nectar robbers and there's certain structures in plants sometimes that are used to actually dissuade or or prevent some of these things from getting into their nectar rewards while allowing other things to get in. And when you say angiosperms, you mean flowering plants? Uh, Yeah, sorry, there's my polysyllabic word for the day. Yes, angiosperms meaning flowering plants. That's very important because there are we don't really think of the other or uh, other plants and how they do it. And there's ferns and cycads and, and liverworts and mosses and, and uh, conifers or pine trees <laughs> that um, all use spores instead. So angiosperms use flowers, and that's to use pollen. I had a professor once tell me that the reason angiosperms were so successful evolutionarily was that they put all their sexual organs out on display, which I thought was rather hilarious. But is that actually true? Oh, on display as in, well, they have modified petal or modified leaves to, yeah, to be attractive units. But that that's not necessarily true because a lot of other things seem to have independently done it based on our knowledge of evolution um uh yeah and conifers have done it (laughs) too as far as i know uh the conifers and angiosperms when i say conifer i mean pine trees anything that has a cone a cone bearing plant have modified structures to allow animals organisms or the environment to carry their um either their pollen or fruit or something like that yeah yeah, Julian. So, uh, in relation to human courtship rituals, well, I know it's slightly off topic, but uh, so when someone gives you a bunch of flowers, they're actually sending you more signals than they realise, maybe. Yeah, might depend on what what flower too. <laughs> Orchids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they might. Yeah, they might think you're a genital. <laughs> they may be calling you a genital. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah, how, how do the non-angiosperms do it then? A lot of them do it based on the environment. That is wind and water. And that's actually why you find some of those, I affectionately call it green slime to some of my colleagues who study liverworts and mosses. Um, that's how, why they actually stick to water because they've got to distribute their sperm through a water medium 
whereas angiosperms or flowering plants have have relied on the organisms or developed other organisms to uh, carry their pollen, which produces sperm. And that's the same with conifers too. So uh, going back to your own research, uh, what particular group of plants do you work on? Uh, I study an Australian group, which is really cool. It's because it's really smelly. <laughs> the Australian mint bush, which a lot of horticulturalists know by. But it's, um, yeah, it's called Prostanthra. And yeah, it's in the mint family. And it's a great group to work on because it's found across Australia and there's a diverse number of um, species with different flower shapes and there's a lot of them that appear to be bird pollinated and a lot that appear to be insect pollinated but in a lot of these cases I should say that appear we can sometimes figure out or estimate what pollinator a flowering plant has based on a combination of characters uh, that the flower or the, that the plant has, the relationship between a pollinator and this, these characteristics of the plant is known as uh, a pollination syndrome. Anyway, back to the mint plant. <laughs> Prostanthra has a bird pollination syndrome, and 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 some have and some species of Prostanthra have an insect pollination syndrome. So mint bushes swing both ways then. <laughs> That's right, or so we think. No one's no one's gone behind the bedroom doors to find this out yet until me. So one of my tasks for my research has been to go out there and actually observe and without getting caught by the police, <laughs> this, this, this behavior, what's going on. And that's taken me to lots of different habitats across Australia. Is it just the birds and the bees, or are there other organisms involved? In, in the case of the mint, in the mint bush, I've found that there's only birds and insects. So when, I say, when you say bees... Yeah, I mean insects, because with my research, the bees don't seem to actually have as much importance to the pollination in these mint bushes as, as one might expect. Uh, you might not expect that things like beetles and flies and butterflies, I guess people expect that, they all actually have quite a, a big role in this situation as well. And I was quite surprised how much flies actually... Um, do well for these plants because they can operate at cooler temperatures. Are mammals involved at all? No, not in not in this case, <laughs> not in the case of the mint. But there are lots of cases across Australia of mammal pollination. Banksias are a big example. I, I've seen myself either it's been a rodent or some sort of dasyrid, which is a, a marsupial mouse kind of thing. I've seen them kind of visiting Banksia flowers before. So I'm always interested in the nitty-gritty, how people actually do the research. Mm. What is it that you do? I mean, I'm, I'm imagining you at the moment, you know, skulking behind bushes with a magnifying glass, following flies in the countryside. <laughs> how do you do this research? I study what exists today, and I also study how it, it has evolved, or, or trends in evolution of pollination. So 
how I pitch my research is that I examine observations of visitation and observations of morphology in, here's my other polysyllabic word, a phylogenetic context. <laughs> that is, you know, constructing a history of these species based on the relationships with each other. And in that kind of idea of their history, I kind of examine morphology or, or basically structure and as well as observations of what they're pollinated by. So it's a little bit of three pieces. That's me looking down a microscope at, uh, at flowers and pollen. That's going out in the field and sitting behind a hide or staying up all night and through rain or blizzards or whatever to see, just to wait and see what actually gets on these flowers. And it also requires me being in the laboratory where I've taken um, uh, plant DNA and amplified it and uh, examined the uh, DNA sequences uh, between the different species to kind of understand the, the relationships between the different species. Can you just tell us what a hide is? Just to hide and, and make sure that I'm, my presence isn't known. I mean, it's not too critical with insects and maybe not as critical with birds in Australia, but you want to make sure you the scientists are not influencing anything. I didn't see any pollinators on that flower. I was standing over it all day, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, we want to be as objective and, and not disturb the situation as much as possible. In my understanding with pollination syndromes, there's considered to be classic morphology of flowers that are bird pollinated mm -hmm. and that are red and and big and bold and classic insect pollination flowers. With respect to your results, did you find what you were expecting to find? Yes and no. <laughs> it's so grey in science. But, uh, yeah, I didn't expect a lot of things. Typically, these uh, trends work in that the bird-pollinated flowers that I was examining, the, the long tubular flowers that are red, they have lots of nectar, and uh, they've got removed insect landing pads, I mean, that is, they don't have any landing pads on them, they actually usually were visited by birds. Same thing with the insect flowers, they're wide open, they had small amounts of nectar, which were really concentrated, they had nectar guides, That admit, what I mean by that are stripes and spots that lead right into the, um, into the tunnel of the flower where the rewards are, those were typically visited by insects, but out in the Blue Mountains, I was studying one tree. They're mostly shrubs, but there's one tree called the um, Victorian Christmas bush, or Prostanthera lasianthos, which is quite a big tree with lots of white flowers. It looked ex like everybody expected that to be insect pollinated, and it was. I was studying it out in the bright sunlight, and there was lots of insect activity. And then, you know how the Blue Mountains gets. It gets cold all of a sudden. It's the land of the four seasons in one day, right? <laughs> well, me and my volunteer were out there, and it was pouring rain. It was, you know, 10, 5, 10 degrees Celsius. And, you know, I had three or four days to do the work in and said, well, might as well go out anyway. And you've got to go out and do the observations anyway, rain or shine. So it was really good that we had that sort of thing. And sure enough, it was boring. There was like 
honeybees were frozen in the flowers pretty much. There was nothing moving. I'm like, why are we out here looking at these stupid plants in the rain? And um, in the mornings, we found that the birds were actually coming to these flowers and visiting them consistently. It was quite exciting and got footage of it. And it kind of shows possibly, you know, a switch in pollination system, weather dependent, you know, that you might not actually see that sort of thing happening in a bright sunny day when you'd want to go out or seeing these flowers. On the contrary, uh, most of the bird ones that I went out and visited were pretty much um, bird visited. But my last day before I said no more, no more investigations, I've got to finish writing up my PhD. I had one more day and I was pushing it. I could have, I could have thrown in the towel early on, but I, I do like doing it. It was a nice warm day and um, there were birds visiting this bird visited flower, but I did manage to observe a native bee actually visiting these flowers too. It are two different types of native bees. Now, one I don't think is a pollinator based on its size, but there's another one that's quite a lot larger, and I think it actually fits quite well. So remember I was telling you about the robbers and the, the less or the not as good pollinators? Well, I imagine that these insects might be not as good pollinators. One of these bees is probably not a pollinator at all, but I think there's a potential that one of them is. And we would have not actually really expected that unless somebody had gone out and tested these syndromes. So is the moral of the story for the PhD student that the early bird gets the worm? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately you have to get up really early. That was Dr. Trevor Wilson about the birds, the bees, and his fantastic mint bushes. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send your emails to diffusion at 2SER.com. Once again, that's diffusion at 2SER.com. Tell us about your thoughts, feelings, and science stories. If you'd like to be on the radio and you live in Sydney, we'd love to have more volunteers. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. Once again, that's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Ian Wolfe, Julianne Popple, and Trevor Wilson. Diffusion has been panelled and produced by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER in Sydney and broadcast nationally across the Community Radio Network. I'm Victoria Bond. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.